I want to continue our series that I started, an occasional series, um, on the secrets of a successful marriage. Secrets of or secrets to a successful marriage. Um, it's, um, this is number two. The first one we looked at, if you remember, was worship the same God. Worship the same God and the importance of that. Uh, today, the title will be Understand the Unique Union. That's a lot of U's. Understand the unique union. You know how long it took me to come up with those U's? No. Uh, understand the unique union is what we're going to look at today. Um, but I want to review a little bit the first point. Worship the same God. And uh, just so we make sure we don't forget that one, since I'll be doing this series maybe once a month, once every other month. So you know what, uh, what we covered before. So the main point I emphasized on the last message, worship the same God, was this. If you and your spouse are truly worshiping God, you can have a successful marriage because you share the most important realities in common. Because you share the most important realities in common, you're well on your way to a successful marriage. So worshiping the same God is critical. And we looked at a number of these common realities if you and your spouse are believing, you share some of these common realities. You have the same identity. You're both in Christ. You both see yourself first and foremost as a Christian. You have the same power. You both have the Holy Spirit within you, and you're able to obey God's commands. You also have the same purpose. You're both striving to please Christ in everything that you do. You have the same manual for living. You're both look to Scripture as the answer. So we looked at these, we looked at some others, how important it is when you're married to remember these important realities that you share in common with your believing spouse. Now, what are the applications of that? Why, why does that lead towards success in marriage? Well, the first that we discussed is it puts all the other differences in marriage into perspective. Men and women are different. Any two people are different, have different habits, different personalities, um, and that shouldn't be surprising. You don't want a husband or a wife who's just like yourself. Um, you want someone who's a little more interesting than that. Uh, not, <laughs> at least I know I did. <laughs> um, but there are differences, but it's not the differences that create conflict, it's how you respond to those differences. But understanding that, you may have differences in habits and personalities and likes and dislikes, but if you hold the most important things in common, those differences will pale in comparison. You'll realize, oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe my husband likes to do this kind of goofy thing, but you know what? We both love Christ. That's okay. Or you know what? My wife leaves the bathroom a mess, and not my wife. I'm saying a person... <laughs> i to be very careful here. I qualify everything. Because she doesn't. I'm saying she doesn't. It's not a mess. Um, but, but for me to get angry and oh, you know, get upset over that, when we both love Christ. We both want to please him in everything. And this little thing, why would that get me upset? So it puts these things in common. It's like, how, how can I possibly get so angry over these little things when we share these most important realities in common? 
I need to see my wife and, you know, every husband needs to see their wife or see your husband as a fellow heir of the grace of life. This is someone that God saved. And when you remember that, this is someone that God chose, it goes a long way towards putting other things into perspective. They just pale in comparison. A second benefit we saw, it you'll see your spouse more as God sees them. When you recognize you share these same realities, that they are a chosen one of God, you realize, you know what, my spouse is an object of God's grace. No, they're not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm thankful I'm an object of God's grace as well, undeserved favor that he's shown to me. He's shown that to my spouse as well. And when I remember that, the God's amazing grace towards my spouse, can't I show grace as well? It really puts that uh, in, in its place as well. And I appreciate one Puritan writer, Thomas Brooks. One of our things we do in our Valencia Bible study, we have a men's meeting, and we're going through the book, uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices uh, by Thomas Brooks, which I highly recommend. And it's a great book, just looking at how Satan tempts us and what are remedies to that. How do we respond in the right way? And he was uh, talking about conflict, how Satan tempts believers to be in conflict with each other. And it applies to marriages as well. And he said this, It is sad to consider that saints should have many eyes to behold another's infirmities and not one eye to see another's graces that they should use spectacles to behold another's weaknesses rather than looking glasses to behold another's graces. Um, And how often is that true? We will look with spectacles, with a magnifying glass to see each other's faults. And yet, each other's graces, what God has done in their life, and we, like, yeah, I know that. And we just set that aside when it should be the other way around. And focusing on, wow, you know, this amazing things that God has done, especially in our spouse. What can I praise the Lord for and what he's done in my spouse rather than just focus on the the problems or issues? And then finally, we looked at uh, an application for single people. And I always want to have at least one application for singles. Now, all of it applies to singles because most people who are single will one day get married. Not always, but most will. Um, So all of it applies, but some I want to make specific application to. And the last time we talked about is because worshiping the same God has so many benefits to your marriage, marry a Christian. If you're single, marry a Christian person. I mean, it seems kind of obvious, and obviously you've heard that before. But that is so important. That'll make the biggest difference uh, in your marriage if you're marrying a believer. And not just someone who calls himself a Christian. This is someone who demonstrates a growing faith that is spending time in God's word, that is putting themselves under the teaching of God's word on a Sunday. Someone who's not entertained by sin. Someone who looks for ways to serve others and seeks the salvation of others. This is the most important thing you want to look for as a single person because this will give you the greatest opportunity for success in your marriage if it is a growing Christian. So that is uh, an important application for you single people. And with that, I, that was what we talked about last time, looking at our relationship to God and how our relationship to God is really the number one factor in our marriages. 
The second thing, the one I want to look at today, is the second most important relationship you have, and, or you can say it's the most important human relationship you have, and that is the one that you have with your spouse and understanding the uniqueness of it. You need to understand how unique the husband-wife relationship is. Uh, there's really nothing just like it in this world. And the reason it's so unique is God created it that way. It's not that it became that way over the years, through customs, through tradition. It's because God created it in a very special way, in a very unique way. And so that's what we're going to look at and how to understand that unique union. So to do that, I said, let's look how God created it. We got to go back to Genesis chapter 2. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And we are going to look at Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. And in here, we're going to see God establishing the first human institution. This is before God created government or put governments in place. Before the parent-child relationship came into place, it was the marriage institution, was the very first one that was created. So let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, we're going to walk through this passage together, and I want to point out some important things that we do not miss. As we see here, the creation of woman and the the beginning of marriage. And I'm going to walk through a PowerPoint here that, uh, that gives the outline, and so you can follow along. And then we're going to look at some lessons, four lessons that we should learn uh, from this narrative and the creation of woman. So the first thing we'll see in verse 18, part A, is a surprising proclamation. So a surprising proclamation. Now, before we just jump into 18a, I should mention that we're jumping into Genesis 2 when, in fact, obviously, there was a Genesis 1. That's a little bit of a Bible knowledge trivia for you. (laughs) Two after one. Um, So what's going on? Now, most of you are pretty aware, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. And then in the rest of chapter 1, we see the six days of creation and what God created each day. And then the beginning of chapter 2, the first three verses talk about the seventh day and how God rested on the seventh day from all that he had made. 
The rest of chapter 2, starting in verse 4, we start to see a further explanation of exactly what that looked like. He fills in more detail. So starting in 2 verse 4, we're not looking sequentially. And some people over the years have said, oh, Genesis 1 and 2, what's going on here? Um, It looks all out of order. Well, it's not sequential at this point. And now he's explaining more. Because we had already seen at the end of chapter 1 that woman was created. And so this isn't something new now that um, at 127, it says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So this isn't now, wait, woman was created, now uh, another woman. Uh, no, this is an, more explanation. Filling out the details a little bit is what we have. And in 218, as we start filling out the details here of the creation of man, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, if you're reading through Genesis 1 and 2, that's all of a sudden going to be very surprising. It is a surprising proclamation indeed. This is something that's not good. Everything we've seen up to here, God is saying, that's good, that's good. Uh, one ten. if you look back at chapter 1, God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God said that it was good. In one twelve, after he made the vegetation, God saw that it was good. One eighteen, the sun, moon, and stars are created, and God saw that it was good. One twenty one, God created the fish and the birds, and God saw that it was good. One twenty five, the beasts, the field, all the creeps on the land, God said it was good. And then 131, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. So you're seeing, hey, everything's good here. And suddenly now, in 2.18, God said it's not good for the man to be alone. So that's surprising, and it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be shocking to us. Here is something that's not good. And in fact, in the Hebrew, it literally starts off the sentence, not good for man to be alone. So it's supposed to get our attention here, something not good. Now, lest we think, "Uh uh-oh, God made a mistake in his creation. Well, that's not what it's saying. It's not that God made a mistake. It's just that it was incomplete, that it was not done yet. It's kind of like a a cake that's not fully baked. It's, It's not good because it's not done cooking, but, oh, it will be good. It's just not good yet. And it is incomplete. God is saying it's not good because man needs something else. Man is alone, and it's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. And for those of you who might know a a single man living alone and seeing his apartment or house, you know it's not good. (laughs) It's it's not a good thing. Uh, But no, seriously, though, it, it... it's not good, even in the very in the garden here where everything's perfect and things weren't a mess at this point, it's not good for man to be alone because, as we'll see in the next, he needs a companion, a helper suitable to them. But I want you to notice, too, this is God's observation. God did not think everything was good, and Adam said, raise his hand, excuse me, this isn't good. Uh, can you do something about this? This was God's observation. God knew it was not complete. God knew something was not good, and that man needed fellowship. He needed a companion. So thankfully, 
we have a God that not only sees something that is not good and incomplete, but he wants to have a solution too. He creates a solution. And when God has solutions, it's perfect solutions. Or we can see here, I use the word a fitting solution because of how God describes it here. And this is in 18b. God says, I will make him a helper suitable to him. God had the ideal solution for man's incompleteness, and that was the creation of a suitable helper. Now, the first thought that may come to your mind is helper. Okay, I see where this is going. Um, You're calling wives helpers, Uh, kind of a servant role. You're saying women are less important than men. It's a lowly and worthless role. Helper, like hamburger helper. (laughs) No one likes hamburger helper. You know, why am I being compared to helper? Maybe you like hamburger helper. I'm sorry. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I've ever had hamburger helper, actually. Um, Betty Crocker makes it, and you know, Betty can't be wrong. But helper seems like a menial term. It seems like something that's, uh, oh, you know, someone to be a helper to man. Well, what we need to understand, when we look at the Old Testament, this word helper or to help is very frequently used of God and how God helps man. For instance, in Deuteronomy 33, verse 7, it says, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With his hands he contended for them, and may you be a help against his adversaries. God is going to be a help against Israel's adversaries. And in Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, uh, verses you're probably familiar with, it says, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and earth. Help, God is our helper. So when we say woman is man's helper, we shouldn't think, oh, well, this is not an important person. Absolutely is important. Just like we need God as a helper, man needs wife as a helper in a different way, of course, but it is not a lower role for a woman to be a helper. Now, there are roles in marriage, but it's not a lesser role. And that's what I want you to make sure you understand from this. It's not as man is better than woman. In the eyes of God, both are made in the image of God. It said that back in 127. Male and female, he created them it says, and in the image of God, he created them. So both men and women are in the image of God. Women are not less than men. They have different roles. We'll talk about that in a future message. But they are equal in the eyes of God. They're both in the image of God. So lest women feel badly about that designation as helper or that man feels superior. Well, first of all, man, you needed a helper. Um, God saw that right away, um, and women can be that helper to men. And, but it doesn't just say a helper. Look at that in 18. It says, find him a helper suitable for him, a suitable helper. And literally, in the Hebrew, it means according to his opposite. According to his opposite. And that's important. This is someone we could translate it, corresponds to him or the word suitable is used here. The perfect corresponding person for man is woman. God knew just what man needed, 
And he needed someone who was also an image bearer of God. Someone who would perfectly correspond to him. A perfect counterpart to him. So, God says, I'm going to make this fitting solution. So, next, we're going to see a painstaking demonstration in verses 19 and 20. God saw that man needed a suitable companion. Adam just hadn't clued into it yet. Guys are sometimes a little slow in the uptake. Um, So God wanted to show this to Adam as well. And so we see a painstaking demonstration. In 19 and 20, it says, Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable to him. Now, before, uh, we could have skipped these two verses, in a sense, 19 and 20, and just jumped to 21, where after God recognized that man needed a suitable helper, God started creating a suitable helper, right? It's, the narrative would have continued just fine, in a sense, if we did that. But these two verses are included for a reason. It's because God wanted to show Adam something. He wanted to show him that nothing else is suitable to him and that he needed a companion. And he did that. God made Adam aware of that by showing him all the animals. And perhaps they came in twos, but we don't know for sure. But he showed him animals and Adam named them, which shows some type of authority over them. And man will have dominion over the animals. But more importantly, he wanted to show Adam that Nothing in the animal kingdom is, is a suitable companion, can have that level of connectedness as another person could. Now, I can only imagine what naming the animals was like. He, you know, maybe named representatives of the animals, but even so, that would have been a very long and a, what I said is a painstaking process. It took a lot of creativity, I'm sure. I was not blessed with that kind of creativity. I think of, I had stuffed animals and that I named as a kid. Not very creative. I had a polar bear, and as a kid I thought, you know, Polly. Polly the polar bear. Uh, a little beanbag bear. Beanie. Not a great name. But, you know, that's my level of creativity. But thankfully, this genius that I have, I passed on to my children. My son had a small pink bear as a child, long time ago, (laughs) called it Pink Bear. (laughs) What a genius name. My daughter had a little yellow bear stuffed animal, naming it Yellow Bear. Yes. So my, my genius passed on to my kids. Of course, over time, that was a favorite of my daughter's. It wasn't yellow anymore, and it was still called Yellow Bear. Uh, No one knew why, but uh, I remember it was yellow bear. Um, The name stuck, even though the color did not. But, you know, Adam was much more creative, and obviously God gave him wisdom and discernment to name the animals and what they are. But again, the main point we see is that Adam was supposed to see that he did not have a suitable helper, that he needed another that was made in the image of God. And the whole process of having the animals pass in front of him was just a way to help Adam understand this, that it's not good for man to be alone. 
So after this demonstration, now we get to verse 21 and 22, where there is a corresponding creation. And it says, the Lord God caused a deep salt upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. He took one of the ribs and closed, closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So here we see God allowed man to see his need for a suitable helper. And it's not because he said, now, Adam, I want you to see this, and let's, let's collaborate here. Let's come up with a good solution now to this problem. The first thing he did as he helped Adam see the problem is then he put Adam to sleep. He said, you see the problem? Let me take care of this problem. And Adam was put into a deep sleep by the Lord because the Lord was the one that was going to create woman. And we could see sometimes that God does his greatest work when we're asleep. Uh, we see that here. Uh, the greatest gift he gave to man bringing him a wife was uh, first putting him to sleep. And this is true in a lot of ways. Psalm 127.2 says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. So we see that verse played out here in Genesis that he gave to Adam even in his sleep. Now that's not saying this is a model of this is how you find a wife. You go to sleep. And God brings a wife. Um, I had heard that. In fact, there was a, a preacher that used to go around and would say, you spiritually go to sleep. Of course, not physically, although you do have to every night. But spiritually, go to sleep in the Lord, and God will bring that woman to you. And that is taking a narrative and making it normative. That's not good biblical interpretation to say, you know, this is how wives come to us any more than we say, well, if you want to find a wife, go work for a man seven years, marry one daughter, and then work another seven years, marry his other daughter. <laughs> that's how we're supposed to find a wife. No, that's taking narrative as normative, uh, and we don't do that there, we don't do that here. But we do see that uh, God does provide for Adam in his sleep. And it says here, how did he do that? It says that God took one of the ribs, and closed up the flesh at that place. Now, the, the word here in the Hebrew literally means side. It doesn't mean rib. It, it means side. And that same word is used for the side of the Ark of the Covenant. Later in the book of Exodus, it talks about the side of a building using the same word. And so it could more literally say, and it took from Adam's side. Now, what did he take from Adam's side? It doesn't tell us for sure, but the translator supplied the word rib. And that's a reasonable, um, a reasonable thing to assume here, that your rib is on your side. And so perhaps it was the rib, but we don't know for sure. But something from the side that God used to create woman. And it's important to notice that woman was not created like man was created. How was man created? He was created from the dust of the earth, right? And, but instead, woman from man, that there was a closeness, even in the creation of woman, uh, from man. And interesting, too, it's from the side of man. And some commentators have waxed eloquent on this, and Matthew Henry made the comment, which, which I think there's something to say about it, is 
it wasn't from Adam's head that she should rule over him and not from Adam's feet that she should be under him, but from his side to together worship the Lord. And I, and I think there is something to that, that this is someone to be a companion. This is a suitable helper for him. Again, not negating roles, which we'll talk about later, but before God, both image bearers of God and equal in the eyes of God. And so from Adam's side, she was created as a companion to him. So when God brought his new creation, the woman, to Adam, we see Adam's response now in verse 23. And that is an excited declaration. An excited declaration we see from Adam here. And it was interesting to note that these are the very first recorded words of mankind. The first words we have of man is this statement right here, what man said. It says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And it's poetry. He starts off just with poetry, um, which is fantastic. Not something I break out with. But, um, but he does, and it's, there's parallelism, there's rhythmic pattern in the Hebrew. It doesn't all come across in the English, but it's, it's beautiful poetry that's being done here. And a couple of the, the parallelisms we can see, the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So we can see, even in English, the, the parallels and the poetry here. But he starts off by saying, this is now bone of my bones. It has the meaning of finally. This is now, or at last. It's like, oh. This is so much better, God, finally. So this is an excited declaration. This is saying, hey, God, animals, yeah, great. But he is excited now because God had made him a perfect companion for him. And, and it perfect because he says this, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I think he's saying, she perfectly matches up with me. She's an image bearer like me. She's a, she's a human and not, not just like me, but suited to me. And so Adam is super excited and says, God, what a creation you made. She is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Says, you shall be called woman. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here we see a, a play on words because the Hebrew word for woman and man sound very similar, ish and isha. They're not taken from the same root, but there is a similarity there. And we see that come across in English, man and woman. And it's not you know, anything to, I mean, lately you say man and woman, you can get yourself in trouble. You can say amen is an a woman, but um, we don't have to, to go there. It's, it's, a, it's a great thing that uh, God made man and he made woman, which is a suitable companion to him, a perfect counterpart. And, and Adam is understandably very excited about what God had done that uh, taken out of man to be his companion. And now we see something very different uh, happen in verse 24. So we've been seeing narrative. This is what happened. This is what happened. Um, and then suddenly we have almost a commentary in verse 24. Now how did... So Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, as you know, um, Moses was talking about creation up till this point. How did Moses know what happened on these first six days of creation? Well, obviously God told him what happened, so he was recounting what God had told him. And now we see Moses, 
through the inspiration of God, God wanted him to write down a commentary on all that had happened. And so now we're going to see an enduring institution, something to learn from all that has happened here on the creation of woman. It starts out for this reason, saying, okay, because creation happened in this way, this now is what should be true of marriage from now on. And so we see what, what is to be true. What should we learn out of the creation story? What is the takeaway? And so this is the, the, really the key verse that we need to consider today is this one. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And in the King James Version, you may be aware, it talks about leaving father and mother and then cleaving to your wife. So you got the leave and cleave, which um, I don't know, people would say all the time, leave and cleave, leave and cleave. Um, but that is exactly what's being talked about here. We know it's not talking about, hey, Adam and Eve, you need to leave your parents. They didn't have earthly parents, did they? So this is a commentary for future generations. This is a commentary for us and what we're supposed to do. Um, and first we see then there's a responsibility to leave. A man shall leave his father and his mother. And this word to leave, it can actually be translated as forsake is what the word means. And it's used in the Old Testament of forsaking idols. Or as the Israelites forsake, they forsook God to worship idols. And so that is how strong this word is. And the word here to cleave or to be joined to his wife has the literal meaning of to stick to or to cling to. And again, a very strong word in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him. So cleave to him or cling to God is what we're supposed to do. So here we see very strong statement of leaving and cleaving or leaving and being joined to. And the idea in this is a, is a, it's a twofold command and a change of relationship. So this is talking about a, a complete change of relationship, not a moving out of the house. And in fact, in, in ancient times then, often the, the son and the new family, the wife would leave her family, and they would all live together in the household of the father. And, but that's not the point. It's not saying leave as in move out of the house. It's talking about leaving as far as first loyalties. It is not first loyalty now to your parents. First loyalty now is to your spouse. And the joining together also includes the idea of a first loyalty. You're joined to now. This is now the first loyalty is to your spouse, not to parents. And it also includes the idea of permanence. Join to cling to stick together means this isn't a temporary thing but you're to stick together for the long term. And, and finally, they shall become one flesh. And one flesh does include physical union, but so much more than that. It includes a spiritual and emotional union. And there's an intimacy that's described in this one flesh relationship. The bonds between parents and child, they're very strong, and they should be. That is a, a beautiful relationship, parent-child. But... 
they're not described as a one-flesh relationship, parent-child. They're not described as a covenant relationship, which marriage is. The marriage relationship is a unique union. It is special. It is described here in terms that are unlike any other relationship. In fact, you, you leave father and mother and you're joined to your spouse. The only relationship that comes close to this kind of loyalty and joining together is Christ and the church, right? That's the only relationship that comes close, and that's exactly what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, uh, verses 28 to 33, he writes this, even quoting from this passage, "'Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh.'" but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So for the marriage relationship to be compared to the relationship between Christ and the church means we need to take very special care of the marriage relationship and what it looks like and hold it in high esteem because it is a unique relationship that is unlike any other. And I want to take this verse in particular and, and look at a number of applications. But before I do that, quickly in verse 25, I don't want to miss that, is that we see an innocent relation. In verse 25, it says, The man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Sin had not yet entered the world. That'll happen in chapter 3. So at this point, there's no shame. This was a marriage now, this very first coming together, that was without sin. It was without fear. It was a marriage without selfishness or bitterness. It was a marriage without conflict, and it was certainly a marriage without shame as well. This is what the ideal marriage is in God's creation, and it is that way because sin hasn't entered. It's sin that creates the problems in marriage. And much will be said in future weeks about putting to death some of those sins, but recognize that God created marriage perfectly here. And we see that in Adam and Eve. So this is what we have here of the creation of woman and how he brought man and woman together and how formed marriage, the first human institution. Now, what lessons can we learn from this? What, what do we take away from this? And that's very important because I think in some ways, um, you may have heard this passage taught before. In fact, many of you have. In fact, some of you could walk through this passage very competently. But what I have noticed many times is while we say, yes, I understand this, what does it look like in practice? What does a one flesh relationship look like in practice? Is so important. And we lose sight of that. So I want to make sure we look at how we apply this. What are the lessons to learn? Now, the first lesson I'll be brief on is God's perfect design for marriage is, as we saw in this passage, a man and a woman. 
When Adam needed a companion, God didn't create another man. That's pretty clear. Um, God made a suitable partner for him. And remember, the suitable meaning according to his opposite, not one that was identical to him. He did not make another man. God made a woman when man needed companionship. And when it says in verse 24, for this reason, giving commentary, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Man and wife. And so this passage is abundantly clear on that. This is God's design. One man and one woman for life. Not one man, one man. So that's all I'll say on that. Hopefully, I don't need to belabor that point with you. Secondly, though, God's perfect design for marriage is a lifelong union. Marriage is a lifelong union. The the word for joined, remember, is to stick to or to cling to. And this passage is so fundamental, talking about this commentary on marriage, that it's quoted multiple times in the New Testament. In fact, it's quoted like four times in the New Testament. And so God saw this as a very important passage to point to. In fact, let's turn to one of those in Mark 10. I want to look at one of the passages in the New Testament and see how Christ took this passage and said, this is what it means. This is one of the applications of this passage. So in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 2, we're going to see... Jesus talking to the Pharisees and, of course, others who are around and pointing them to this. So in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 2, it says, Some of the Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus points back here to Genesis 2. And quick side note, going back to the first lesson, it says God made them male and female, leave father and mother. Some people say, well, God never, or Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Well, yeah, he did. Uh, He said he made them male and female, and this is what it's supposed to be. But what is going on here in Mark chapter 10 is this. The Pharisees, again, trying to trap Jesus. They're testing him. It says in verse 2, and they want to catch him uh, in something, and they ask him about, uh, is it lawful to divorce a wife? Trying to trap him, because if Jesus held to a no-divorce policy, you know, John the Baptist was just put to death by Herod for uh, speaking out against uh, Herod's adultery. And maybe the Pharisees thought, all right, let's get Jesus riled up and get him put to death as well. And, or they thought, well, maybe he'll instead side with us. They, the Pharisees were very much an easy divorce uh, type of mentality at that time. You could send a wife away for a number of reasons. Of course, they didn't see the flip way where a wife could send a husband away, but they did think you could send a wife away. And so part of it, they want to say, well, maybe he'll side with us and 
but other people will turn against him because he's contradicting the law. So they thought they might be able to test him here and, and trap him in something. And you can see Jesus asked the question back, what did Moses command you? So he first wanted to see how they would respond. And they start off by saying, well, Moses permitted a certificate of divorce. Their starting point in the discussion of marriage and divorce is Moses permitted a divorce, so, so it must be okay. They had the wrong starting point. They should have started back in Genesis 2 and what was God's design. And they even took this uh, statement from the law incorrectly as well. In Deuteronomy 24, which is where they're pointing or uh, referring to here, this is a regulation about when a divorce has happened. Moses didn't say you can divorce. He didn't say you should divorce. Uh, he's not didn't legitimize it or sanction it in any way. He's just saying in a specific case of uncleanness where there's divorce, you can't go back and forth again and have this remarriage happening. So they even took what Moses said here incorrectly as well. But Jesus pointed them back to Genesis 2. And he pointed them back to this God-making male and female, them to be joining as one flesh. And you see here he repeats it in verse 8. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. He wants them to understand this is a one flesh relationship. And he follows it up, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And just the fact that Marriage is not only a one flesh relationship by nature, by definition, God is joining together here. And when God joins together, you better not separate that bond. So what Jesus points to here is the permanence of marriage in this one flesh relationship. Because it's one flesh, therefore marriage is permanent. It's a lifelong union. So we need to remember that is the case. Third lesson, and I have four altogether, is God's perfect design for marriage is a first priority human relationship. The marriage relationship is not like any other human relationship. It's a one flesh relationship where two are joined by God. And that is, this is the point, I think, where a lot of us fail in understanding the application of the one flesh relationship and what that should look like in marriage. Once you are married, you must treat that relationship as more important, number one, than your relationship with your parents. That's made abundantly clear. And that's, in some cultures, that's very difficult. In Asian cultures, uh, where we were serving in China, very hard to break away from that being first loyalty to parents. But it needs to be, and we had premarital counseling with people to encourage them that way. But I think there, it even can happen uh, in that you are more concerned about what your parents think about a decision you make than what your spouse does. That's a problem. Your number one concern is, what does my spouse think about this? What does my husband or wife think? Not, what do my parents think? Now, obviously... You, want, you honor your parents. You go to your parents. You seek their counsel. That's a good thing. Uh, even when you're an adult and you're married, you do seek your parents. But that's not your number one loyalty. You offend parents before you offend your spouse. Your spouse is your number one. 
But even more common than forgetting first priority relationship is your spouse, is your parents, instead of your spouse, is to put your children instead of your spouse as your first priority relationship. And this is what I definitely have seen a lot of, and uh, you probably have as well. The children, their needs, their joys uh, take first place. And it's easy your life to be consumed with what your children are doing. And children need a lot of attention, of course. Of course, uh, especially in the very early years, it's constant attention. And as they grow older, you want to spend time with them and you encourage them in their sports and their schoolwork and, and all these things and obviously have a great love for them. But they are not your first priority relationship. They are not more important than your marriage. And this is where marriages run into trouble, where the topic of conversation 99% of the time is about the kids. It's the kids this, the kids that. And suddenly, the kids move out. It's, what do we talk about? What happened to our relationship? And a couple things can happen. Number one, the marriages can start to fall apart when that happens because they just struggle in how to communicate to one another. Or they continue to try and control their kids' lives even after they're married. Because this is what my life was about before they were married, so this is kind of the path I'm on. Both are problematic. The marriage relationship must be central. And actually you think, oh, well, I love my kids too much. It would hurt them to, uh, to them to think that they're second place to me and that my spouse is more important. Reality is your kids will benefit the most if they recognize how important your marriage is and the stability that that provides in the household. By them seeing that, they realize, okay, I see where I fit in our family. I see, see what this is. It's not a lack of love towards your kids, but it's just a great love for your spouse that needs to be so important. So you can ask yourself, do I spend more time caring about my husband than I do my children? Do I care more about his hobbies his likes and dislikes than I do about the children. Or the same thing can be said, do I care more about my wife than I do the children? Do I want to talk about my wife is interested more than my son or daughter's sports team um, or my son or daughter's accomplishments? Do I interest myself in my wife's interests? I think that's an important thing to think about um, in your relationship. Don't make... Kids the center. That's not how God designed the marriage relationship. It's supposed to be the first priority. Now, let me mention this, too, is um, an application for singles kind of embedded in this. Um, and although a lot of this will be applicable to you one day, specifically, you can know this. A lot of you, as a single person, you'll have a friend that gets married before you do. That, that's likely to happen unless you're absolutely the youngest to get married. But a lot of times that'll happen, and you have a friendship with that other person that suddenly is married, and that relationship isn't the same as it was. Your, your friend now is married, and they're spending a lot more time, obviously, with their husband or wife, and, and you feel like, oh, my nature of relationship has changed. Well, you know what? It should. That's, that's how it's supposed to be. The marriage relationship is so important. You don't lose those other friendships. You want to maintain those, and those are good but it's not going to be the same. And that's a hard thing to go through. I was single until I was 25, and I had a lot of friends get married first, and I, and I 
remember that, and I didn't always handle it well. But, um, but recognize that, and don't let that bother you, and realize that, okay, the marriage relationship is important. So I wanted to point that out. But one more application is God's perfect design for marriage is a commitment to complete oneness. While the oneness in marriage and the one flesh relationship does include the physical oneness and the sexual relationship, there is so much more to one flesh relationship than the physical aspect. The physical is actually a culmination of the relational and emotional aspects of the relationship. There is a oneness that you're supposed to see you and your spouse in. You're no longer two separate people. You are one person. You're a team is one way to think of it. You are now a team together. And when challenges come in life, and there's going to be difficulties in life, there's going to be uh, job situations that go south, uh, disease, challenges, accidents happen. You face them together. It's not how am I facing it and how is my spouse facing it. It's how are we facing it together. If something happens to your wife, it hurts you because it hurts her. If something disappoints your husband, it disappoints you because it disappoints him. There has to be seeing yourself as one. And in Ephesians 5, what we looked at earlier, husbands are to love their wives as they love their own bodies. And that has that idea of one flesh. We take care of ourselves, don't we? We need to take care of our wives as much as we take care of ourselves. To see yourself in this permanent one flesh relationship. So some practical ways to gauge this. Am I more concerned about offending, inconveniencing, or disappointing my spouse than I am anyone else, even my own children? What is it worse for me to disappoint my husband or wife than it is to disappoint my children? Do I ever think or say to my spouse that it's none of your business? Well, there's none of them. Flesh, you're one now. Such thinking has no place in marriage. Or does my spouse's joys or sorrows result in my own joy or sorrow? Are my spouse's concerns my concerns? And that's how it should be in a marriage relationship. There should you need to understand this unique union. It is a special relationship between the two. So in conclusion, work on putting that one flesh relationship into practice. Think about that. Think about what that means. We've heard it from Scripture. We know the term, but are we living it out? Think about what, what is my spouse concerned about today? What is my husband concerned about this week? What is my wife concerned about this week? When you're your husband or wife's biggest fan and supporter and she is yours, I tell you, marriage, marriage is a lot better, and God uses that in great ways. Well, let's pray together. Father, we want to live out marriage the way you intended it. You made it perfect there in the garden, and you gave us instruction of what it's supposed to look like. And Lord, we let sin get in the way, and particularly our own selfishness get in the way. Lord, I pray that each one of us would be faithful to die to self, would continue to think about how we can please our spouse, 
to share in their joys and sorrows, to, to see each other as one. Lord, you are a great God, and we thank you for your wonderful creation. And this day that we can worship you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.